I am going to go ahead and read today's scripture passage. It's from 1 Peter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. Please rise as we sing the doxology. I spoke with a member of our church who had an experience uh, this week. She does boxing, and this past week in the gym that she trains at, she was paired to spar with somebody who is both uh, significantly bigger and heavier than her, and also less skilled, which is a dangerous combination. It's not an actual fight, and therefore having somebody who's skilled and can control their power Uh, is an advantage, and this person inappropriately landed a a very hard punch uh, on our dear friend, and her thought, she said, was uh, the way to handle this would be to explain to him afterwards (laughs) sort of the etiquette of sparring that you, um, there's an appropriate level of expressing your strength, and that was out of line, and so that was her plan, uh, and another hard punch came, and while that was still the goal to kindly explain how he was out of line, she said, um, but her instincts matched his aggression and she used her strength and skill in response. Now, this was not a tragic situation. There was nothing necessarily inappropriate with that response, but it was part of a conversation where we were talking about um, the temptation we have to give in to how other people are treating us. If somebody is acting inappropriately, you you may have a conviction about what you want to do. Um, But there's something about the effect of people who are doing wrong that pulls us in so we join them or discourages us so we give up. And we've been looking at 1 Peter, this New Testament letter, where Peter is trying to encourage Christians to stay faithful to the ways of Jesus Christ that there's this new spiritual life that gives us wisdom. So now that we have new understanding, new insight, and we're being encouraged to consistently do it, but we're encouraged to do it because we live in a world where things break down. And Peter is writing to Christians who are prone to being mistreated and suffering. And he's saying, don't give up. (laughs) And certainly don't give in and start to uh, allow the way people mistreat you to be the, the way you treat them or the way your character is shaped and how you treat others. And we're now in a section where Peter is applying this to specific institutions. And so for the last month, we're coming out of a verse where he says, um, you know, be subject to every institution. And one of the things that I said is that when we're free, 
submission, a humble self-sacrifice as a way of honoring and loving people. That's a Christian vision for the relationships where we're all doing this. The problem is uh, we live in a world where we, people want to control others through coercion. And so, so often being subject is not free. It's not healthy. It's quite problematic. So Peter's trying to help Christians to remain faithful as they engage the institutions of the world. And so a month ago, we looked at government and citizens. As he says, remember the emperor and, and governors. Um, uh, two weeks ago, um, we looked at the workplace as he talked about the relationship between servants and masters. And then last week and today, we're moving into the institution of marriage. And the picture here is not that he's giving us a positive theology to say this is the way that we could have a thriving government or thriving business or thriving families, although there are certainly things in there that are instructive. He's saying, actually, we live in a world where corruption is everywhere. And so your government, although their role is to serve and protect you, they will take advantage of you. Business leaders and bosses and, and people with uh, authority in, in work institutions are meant uh, to, to cause uh, thriving and striving and, and health, um, but you will be exploited and taken advantage of. And even within marriage, where it's much smaller, it's two people, that, that even in the modern convention where in New York we presume people freely choose to get married because they want to because they love someone. The warning there of the potential for things to break down, for there to be something that wears us down and then that institution becomes unhealthy is a reality. And so Peter is reminding us that no matter what role we play in society, what specific relationship we're in, we're to look to Jesus, we're to understand who he is, apply his wisdom, and keep doing that consistently, even if the systems that you're in, whatever they are, are dysfunctioning. So today I'm going to focus on verse 7. Last week, what I drew out of verses 1 to 6 was more the, the, the call to have that authentic heart and not to be caught up in the superficiality. Uh, but now I want to go into that dynamic between husbands and wives, and I'm going to focus on verse 7. And I want to talk about three concepts we see in this passage, and they are vulnerability, honor, and inheritance. Those are the three categories that I want to uh, use to organize what we talk about today, vulnerability, honor, and inheritance. So I'm beginning with vulnerability um, because I think it, it, it's a helpful word that will um, give us a window into how to understand what I think Peter is trying to encourage here. The opening story of the Bible, so you know, Genesis 2 through 4, is really one story of God forming Adam and Eve and bringing life, breathing life into them and announcing blessing, um, but then it's Adam and Eve turning. And one word, to use the vocabulary of our passage, of verse 7 in particular, one of the ways to understand what happened in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve is they did not honor God. Uh, and then we find that the outworking of that was, was not simply a turning from God, but a turning against one another that then marks humanity. It, there's the roots of, of gender relations gone wrong, um, but it works itself out in the institution of the family as the first children, Cain and Abel. Um, one dishonors God by killing the brother who he should have been more like. And so we find that there's a story uh, with such potential, Genesis 2, the formation of Adam and Eve, humanity, where there's a wholeness, there's a delight in one another and the presence of God. And, it's, and Eden is that picture of the paradise. It's a, it's a fruitful place. Maybe modern people think of 
of, of paradise as vacation. But Eden was brimming with possibility. Uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth. It wasn't that they were to sit down and relax, but actually there was a, they did have work to do, but it was good, whole work that they would partner together under God. And in their choice to dishonor, to not recognize the goodness of God's rightful authority, the outworking of that was not simply alienation from God, but human alienation, as one of the first things Adam does is blame the woman for the choice that he made. And it's that pattern that we see now characterizes human relationships, institutions, government, work, but families as well. And there's an ominous phrase at the end of chapter 2, before anything goes wrong, that Adam and Eve, they were naked and they were not ashamed. And this is a picture of goodness, not in some weird way, but um, they, weren't, they didn't need to cover themselves up. They, without experiencing shame, they could be who they were and delight in it and work together. One of the markers of having turned from God is not only that they knew good, but now they had an understanding of evil, is they covered themselves up. They went into hiding in the bushes, they clothed themselves, and so there's a sense in which human beings don't like vulnerability now because vulnerability exposes. And there's an inherent weakness in us all that we want covered up. And so that's part of the warning from, the, from last week is, Make sure that your heart is right and don't try to cover up who you are with some external projection in a superficial way, but make sure that you're really working on who you are and, and not allowing shame to, to remain. And so it's that vulnerability that I'm highlighting here because it's a way of understanding actually in a, in a more helpful way, I think, the human condition. And I'm using two words that, that I, I got from Andy Crouch, who's a Christian thinker and he has a book called Strong and Weak. And for him, he, uh, the concept of strength, he uses the word authority, and the concept of weakness, he uses vulnerability, because he's not highlighting weakness as negative. Now, Christianity does not encourage weakness as we think of it, um, meaning that being afraid, being timid, um, uh, you know, not having the, the strength to, to act uh, in a meaningful way. It's not that that's encouraged, but, but there's something potentially good about humanity that we fail to appreciate because of our corrupted views of strength, the idolatry of strength, and the false images and expressions of it, that when somebody doesn't have that, we look down on them and we take advantage of them. And so the language of strength and weakness, of, of um, thinking of it as authority and vulnerability, I think is helpful because Crouch defines authority as the capacity for meaningful action the capacity for meaningful action. That's a, a, a vision for strength. And vulnerability is exposure to meaningful risk. So the language of exposure there is what makes us nervous about vulnerability or our concept that we may have weakness. But, but meaningful risk, um, to let somebody know that you're not good enough <laughs> allows them to teach you, to learn. But there's a vulnerability there of letting them see your incompetence. And we tend to hide it so we don't learn. I mean, the language of uh, exposure to meaningful risk sounds like it comes from a financial advisor, right? Um, you know, are you weak if you're deciding to t make a, a more courageous investment? Not necessarily. That could be a sign of strength as long as you're not a fool. <laughs> so risk could bring reward, but make sure that if you have exposure you have a plan for the volatility of the market so that you're not rendered actually weak. 
And so, so the concept of strength and weakness, as he thinks of authority and vulnerability, what Crouch says is both are needed for human flourishing. And so in the picture of strength we have, which thinks, you know, this, whatever it is, physical strength, um, institutional strength, where we want to dominate, we actually wind up not flourishing as human beings. And, and the concept of what it looks like to mean to work with different people uh, and those that may not have the same strengths, rather than despising them or using them, is there a way that we can flourish together? Now, Crouch does not apply this to marriage. He's talking about even within an individual, we need to be both strong and weak, have authority and vulnerability for health. But I certainly think it applies to the partnership of marriage, where both need to have authority and vulnerability. Um, but sometimes in a partnership, you lean on one person's strengths and the other person uh, is more vulnerable. And in a healthy marriage, that's good because you're partners, you love one another. What we're looking at now is the institution of marriage and, and the potential it could have for breakdown. And so Peter uses a phrase here that's provocative. I, as much as I wanted to spend several weeks in this passage reading that, re that reading twice where you're hearing uh, things like the woman as the weaker vessel, um, our concept of weakness, immediately we hear that and we think that must be offensive, that must be describing something negative. And that alone tells us something of how we've been trained to think about strength and weakness. Is Peter really saying something offensive? Well, I'm not going to try to control whether or not you get offended, but my goal is let's try to actually understand what, what I think he's saying. And I think what he's saying is quite important. Um, so it's verse 7, that's our focus. What does it mean when he refers to, to women as the weaker vessel? And, and there's a couple of different interpretations as people try to make sense of it. Some have said uh, that women are more prone to giving in to temptation. Maybe it's a moral weakness. If you read the Bible, men are not typically pictured as being strong in the face of temptation. Um, so one, one thought was, well, the women are, are uh, more prone uh, to compromise. Again, I don't know that... That just doesn't seem to make sense of, uh, of the broader scriptures. But perhaps the most common interpretation that I've seen as I've read is that it's talking just about physical weakness, that the average man is stronger than the average female. That doesn't mean an above average female is not stronger than a below average man or however you think about it. But some people just, they simply say, he's talking about physical weakness and so let's just note that and move on. Possibly. What I think is going on in the context of the passage because he's talking about Christians who are disadvantaged and he's highlighting different institutions that Christians function in, uh, where there'll be citizens, where there'll, there'll be employees and there'll be spouses. And, and he's trying to help us to engage how do you behave honorably, not simply when the institution is flourishing because then you don't need to think about it. It's when there's a breakdown, what does it look like to imitate Christ? I think what Peter is saying is, is he's highlighting that the way most societies have organized, government, workplace, and marriage, often the woman has been the more vulnerable in terms of the relationship. And so uh, here he is trying to recognize a dynamic to give us understanding of. Let me give an example of, of how this works, even in, let's say, the best case scenario, a, a modern society like New York where we are aiming to have progress and fairness and how we think of things like gender and marriage. 
um, a, a, a contemporary couple in New York City who decides we're married and we would like to have children. Now, that decision brings reward, but also cost. There's sacrifice in parenting. And both, will, if they make that decision, would need to know on the one hand, um, there's something desirable that we have that we want this and, and we're hopeful for the benefit of that. But on the other hand, this is going to be expensive. <laughs> we're not going to sleep. Uh, the freedom to just go out to a, to a show or out to eat or get, go on vacation will now be changed. So there are sacrifices. So, so any wise couple will recognize whatever advantages are, there are sacrifices. But if they are successful in conceiving, immediately the woman starts making certain sacrifices that may not have been named in the decision to have children, but it begins with morning sickness. And then it goes through the pain of childbirth. I have found, as the father of three, those days were exhausting. But I don't imagine I get sympathy from anyone for having endured the exhausting hours while my wife labored away. Um, she, uh, there was a, a suffering, a sacrifice that, that she took on. And, you know, even as, as uh, couples make decisions as the best that they're able, historically in most of the world, in most of time, the kinds of choices you have to make, certainly before the technology of being able to buy formula, but even now, if you're economically disadvantaged, the choice to buy formula so that you have greater freedom or the choice to just produce for free, um, the choice to uh, what choices you have in terms of can you afford a nursery or childcare, not everyone has the same freedom. And therefore, what often happens when families have young children, if there's a marriage breakdown, you may have a wife with young children who desperately doesn't want to be married to her husband but feels like she cannot leave, whereas the man may feel like he can. And so it's not that that's good. It's the recognition that when things that are not good creep into our arrangements, our institutions, there's often one who's more at risk. And historically, the way the world has been organized, um, because of how we think of strength, women in their vulnerability have been more likely to be exploited or ignored. And so Peter is calling husbands to wisdom to recognize that the woman in the institution of marriage is a weaker vessel. The language vessel is used for men and women in various parts of the New Testament. That shouldn't be a striking term. But, but what does he mean by weaker? I, I don't think he's saying um, inferior, less competent, less able, lacking strength. I think he's saying husbands have understanding that if there's a breakdown, your choices uh, maybe uh, have a different impact. You may have a certain freedom, for example. So that's why in verse 7, when he says, uh, honor your wives as the weaker vessel in an understanding way. And the understanding I think that Peter wants us to have is, is a gospel understanding, an understanding, a spiritual understanding that as new people, we understand the nature of Jesus and how he engages the world. And we're going to be tempted in the world um, to give up on that. So it's not necessarily that he wants you to have an understanding of socio sociology and feminist issues. I don't know that that's on his mind. I think he wants us to have an understanding of, of what it looks like to be honorable and faithful. And therefore, he's saying, husbands, you need to apply that understanding if you're going to be partnering in life with somebody who may be uh, exposed to more meaningful risk than you. And so in that regard, 
Um, what we tend to do in our self-serving nature, when somebody is more vulnerable, the self-serving nature says, how can I exploit this? Or if I will restrain myself from that, how will I not get pulled down, dragged down by it? And so one of the dynamics for husbands in marriage is not to take advantage and exploit your spouse, your partner, but on the other side, to live in an understanding way. If, if you don't have understanding, that sounds quite patronizing. If you're thinking that the woman's weakness is, is a problematic asset and, and you think my goal is just to ignore it, it lacks understanding, an understanding of Jesus and his ways of dealing with different scenarios where people are to be working together. And so I want to move from talking about vulnerability to talking about honor. This is the second thing, because what do you do when someone's vulnerable? Selfish human instinct is, how do I take advantage of this for my gain? Or how do I just ignore it so I don't get pulled down by it? A Christian understanding is one way of responding is by showing honor. That's the teaching. That's, that's the charge here. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. This is a different way of engaging difference in the world where we are, have authority and vulnerability, strength and weakness. How do we work together? Well, when you have the authority, you show honor to the woman uh, if she is in a situation of vulnerability and it will work the other way uh, within marriage, but uh, the man may, uh, in, in a marriage relationship, feel like he has certain advantages, but at work has disadvantages. The husband and wife in a certain society may feel like as citizens they have disadvantages. Um, all of us need to be working with the areas where do we have authority, where do we have vulnerability, and how do we flourish. And so the response, the language here is to honor. Now, this section was introduced by Peter um, giving a couple of charges before he goes and he says, honor everyone, love the brethren, meaning the family of God, fear God. So you love your family, you honor everyone in society, um, and you fear God. And those are not hard and fast categories, but it's appropriate, the, the language of honor is appropriate to his encouraging Christians within institutions. Because if you were to say, what is the fundamental dy dynamic in a marriage? Um, how do you deal with authority and vulnerability? And the, the modern answer, which would be right, except that I'm suspicious of how modern people would mean this, would be to love. Love is the principle. Love is that organic dynamic that, that doesn't require institutions or arrangements or agreements, but but where the, there's a delight in the other person, an investment in the other person, so that sacrifice can still be hard, but you willingly do it. And so Paul, writing to husbands in Ephesians 5, says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so love is the fundamental dynamic. Where there's love, there's flourishing. The problem is, most of us experience love fundamentally as an emotion. And it's, it includes an emotion, the delight, the goodness, the desire. But it has to be deeper than that for it to be love, which is why modern conceptions of marriage based on love are, are based on uh, romantic notions of feeling, which means uh, as couples get to know one another in a dating environment, 
there could be so much excitement of just the getting to know you process and the possibilities and, and, uh, and syncing up that, that if that's all there is and then you actually partner in life where you share bank accounts and one person has a stressful job and there's a family member who's sick and these various things, all of a sudden the monotony of, of you know, 10 years into a relationship, we're no longer excited about everything, we, every place we go and everything we do and now the stresses of life are causing me to, uh, to be a bit frustrated and I no longer feel like I love this person that I'm married to. It's not that feelings are unimportant, but what you still do is love your spouse. The problem is, in the institution of marriage, in the arrangement, uh, sometimes the roots of people's love are weak enough that whether it's their own corrupt hearts, they went into marriage for self-serving reasons and never really understood it, and the selfishness is still there, and so they don't really love the spouse, or whether it's the feeling of love of two people that really went in in good faith, but just worn down by life being hard and you show up at the workplace and you once loved your job but now you work with incompetent people and an unfair boss and you are subject to submit and to honor that person and you come home with the frustration of what you couldn't say and you take for granted the person that you can take it out on and that damages the relationship. Uh, It is hard to endure two people in this world, two imperfect people as we're always put together, uh, to continue to love one another. But we need to. We must love one another. But what happens when you don't feel like loving the person? And it's not that this is the ultimate strategy, but, but so you don't get pulled in to reviling those who revile you, to mistreat one person as somebody else has mistreated you is you recognize there's an institutional commitment, a structure, you've, you've taken vows, you're now part of a family, and therefore, while love should freely enable you to make good choices when you feel not love but loathing, stop and act with honor. That's Jesus' charge in this whole thing. Be honorable, and so now he's applying it to the situation where you're relating to somebody who's not acting honorably. How do you still act with honor yourself? And so the picture here in verses 1 through 6 is, is a woman whose husband uh, doesn't believe this message and therefore is not accountable to it. And in verse 7, there's a picture of a, of a husband who needs to show honor. And, and ideally, when, when both parties are loving each other and honoring one another, there's flourishing. It's when there's a breakdown, we're being encouraged. Remember your role, your participation in this commitment and be honorable And therefore, it's important that you look with honor at the person. And so, um, the reason uh, that this is actually an expression of of authority and strength, meaningful action, the choices that you make in those situations where you are vulnerable, but you're relating to somebody who's vulnerable, is, is the exercise of strength in that kind of situation needs to change from the demonstrations of strength we have in this world, which are often exploitive. Um, The dynamic is meant to be where you're honoring, and we get that from Jesus. You know, the reason that the gospel is powerful is not because Jesus comes to us um, sent by a God who is weak. That's some of our fear, that maybe God is not in control, has no authority. And yet, because of the nature of human shame and hiding, because of our past of dishonoring God and our hearts filled with fears and doubts, uh, the power and might of God that we need to be our protector creates 
a certain vulnerability for us of what happens if that strong and powerful God sees me and my flaws. And so we wind up stuck, we wind up stranded. Jesus comes in the, in the um, Beatitudes in Matthew 5. He announces a blessing on the meek. It's a characteristic that he has himself. The word meek sounds like the word weak in English, but they're very different. Uh, he's not saying, I'm inspiring you to weakness, <clears throat> because um, sometimes our displays of strength are really uh, showing our weakness. Think of the bully in elementary school. You know, one kind of story where you have, have someone who has an aggressive father who intimidates, and so here is an eight-year-old kid who's just threatened and he feels humiliated and shamed by that. And then he goes to school and he wants to get along with people, but people aren't nice to him. So um, the natural scenario of being humiliated and shamed, uh, when somebody has power over you, all of a sudden you then take that pattern. Rather than humbly trying to engage those kids, you then project strength and you try to beat them up. This cycle that people think, oh, this bully is really strong, I need to watch out for them. But we would understand actually that projection of strength is a sign of weakness. There's something wrong if you're showing up uh, wanting to smack people around in order to demonstrate your power. That's actually not power. It's a perversion of power that stems in some weakness, some vulnerability. Um, that's human power, human weakness. God comes with power and glory. And so Jesus comes meek. He comes humble. He comes with great skill and control of his power. But it's not that it's not there. Think of his terrified disciples in a boat in the storm when Jesus has the authority to tell the wind and the waves to be still. They're overwhelmed. Only the creator has this power. Who is this person with us? Think of the, the demon-possessed man who is bound in chains that I imagine it took a group in the village to overcome this individual, to put him in chains, to stop him from harming people. Jesus didn't say, look, my job is to to let the children come to me and I'm going to go to the children but keep the big guy in chains in the cave because uh, that's the ministry for somebody else. Jesus goes to the children and welcomes them. But he also goes with authority over the evil in that guy to cast it out, to do in his life what the village could not do. Jesus comes in power and glory. He doesn't come in weakness, but he comes in meekness. He comes with humility. And it gives us a unique picture of God, the Christian conception of God, which is God is powerful, like we can't imagine. But in human shame, where, where if we really think about God's power and our own genuine weakness in all of it, it creates a terrifying reality where we want to hide, we want to cover up, we don't want to engage with that God, and so we stay weak. Peter is saying there's a, a new life, a new spiritual reality that will change you from the inside. And that's going to create true strength, but it's going to look different from the world. And you're going to go into the world that either exploits you or ignores you. And you need to follow Jesus Christ. But you're following him is because uh, the Christian has learned that, that Jesus sent by the Father comes with his power and authority. But it's not to expose us to humiliate us. We find that instead Jesus was exposed as his clothes were stripped from him and he was nailed to a cross as people hurled insults and mocked and ridiculed him. And what we're told is that the power of God was shown in his love for us and that Jesus was willing to bear that shame in order to deal 
with the sin that plagues us, in order to deal with our corruptions, in order to deal with that fundamental weakness that makes us exploiters and hiders. Christianity says the nature of God is seen in Jesus Christ, powerful and mighty, but humble and generous. And what that says is, if you only have a nice but weak God, you'll have a spiritual life that doesn't really prepare you for the corruption of the world. But if you only have a powerful, vengeful God, you're going to count on that God to do things that will not help you to engage in the ways of God in that scenario. What we have, the call to follow Jesus, is to understand that instead of hiding our weakness, we admit it. Because the one that we come to is gentle. Not because he's weak, because his power and authority are skilled and excellent. And it's that unique dynamic. I was talking with somebody yesterday who was saying that in the workplace, um, sometimes if she doesn't know what she's doing, uh, where you need help from somebody who's competent and you want guidance, there are certain people who are very competent and able but not approachable. And therefore your temptation is to pretend you know what you're doing and continue to exist not knowing. But when you have somebody who's competent and also uh, their control of their ability is, makes them approachable, then you can actually learn and thrive by coming and saying, here's something that I don't know how to do, help me. Um, most of us fail in our discipleship because we can't admit to ourselves, no less to other people, our true vulnerability. There's an exposure that, that says, I'm going to let people in. What Christianity says is, is the first person you let into the depth of your very being is the one that you alone can trust, Jesus Christ. And when he comes in and you trust him, that he is powerful um, but merciful, it creates the possibility for a true strength, a true transformation. And what Peter is saying is then you go out into the world and the world functions differently and it's going to seem like it doesn't work. (laughs) But don't give up and certainly don't give in. And so that's what we're told, which is why the last thing I want to talk about is inheritance. So I talked about vulnerability, exposure uh, to meaningful risk. Um, Talked about uh, that second um, reality, which is that honor is the Christian way to to remain in the structures, uh, the relationships, the commitments we have. Because of this concept of grace, and so the third thing, as I finish out verse 7, speaking of to the husband, why should you honor your wife? Why do you need to be understanding? Because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And it's that great, you know, Peter begins by talking about life that comes to us. It's like being born a second time. There's a new birth that happens, that, that the, the mighty God awakens us spiritually, and, and it comes by grace. It's not because you earned it or deserved it. So, in a relationship, like a marriage, if you're tempted to think that you are the stronger and more advantaged one and you are the savior of the person you're married to, we're told you understand the dynamics of a relationship. You're partners, And you need to be be rooted in grace. Two real imperfect people who get married need to be rooted in grace to understand the strength and the mercy of God and the call to allow that uh, to be your foundation. The grace of life 
must lead to a life of grace. And that's Peter's concern, is that the corruption of the world will pull you into a life of corruption. Um, Know the grace of life and be steadfast in a life of grace. Love, but when you don't feel like loving, (laughs) be honorable. Honor people. And so that phrase, they are heirs. You did not earn it, and you are not going to share your winnings with your spouse. It was given to you through relationship with God. God calls you not simply to reap a reward for what you've earned, because what we would earn is condemnation when our shame is exposed. What we're told is Jesus bears the condemnation so that you can be given what you don't deserve. That's grace. And now the fundamental assumption about man and woman is there's an equality. There's a a with. (laughs) The wife is an heir with you of the grace in life. She's saved as you are. She receives as you are. She's loved by God as you are. The two of you are partners. There's an equality that's assumed between male and female. Even if, as things unfold, sometimes one of you needs to act and the other one is in the riskier position. However that plays itself out in a specific instance, the idea is we are partners and we're bringing our strengths and our vulnerabilities in order to do life together. Um, But it's that equality, the the co-heirs, the idea that together by grace we, we understand authority and vulnerability differently so that we're honoring one another. So when all goes well, just let love fill things. When things don't go well, love anyway. But if you don't feel like loving, be honorable. Now there's a, an application here that's important for us to understand the relational dynamic that's assumed. And, and the application here is to husbands and wives. Not all of you are married or or maybe necessarily even want to be married, but it's, it's a similar application here that applies to the various other institutional relationships. So the ones that were named, citizens and government, uh, employees and employers, husbands and wives, but think of your context, teachers and students. <laughs> if you're a student, um, there's a certain yielding, submitting to the teacher. If you're a teacher, there's a certain needing to show honor for that dynamic to, to work well. And so, so the dynamics here apply to the various scenarios. But here there's a specific charge to husbands who function in a relationship where in society women are still perhaps more vulnerable to exploitation, to being ignored. Um, What does it look like to to honor that person? Well, that's what we need to apply. We look at Jesus as the model. How does he honor us in our weakness? We're all weak. We're all vulnerable. How does Jesus treat us? Well, then take that and put it into action in your context. Uh, There's a warning here which is to say, if you're somebody who's vulnerable, uh, one of the assumptions of Peter is when, when the government is not watching out for you, when your employer is not watching out for you, when your husband, whatever it is, is not watching out for you, remember, God is watching out for you. He's your shepherd, follow him. But there's a charge for those who have to steward authority, to show honor, to look with honor. And the warning here is, if you're rooted in grace, It's the relationship with God that will fill how you relate to the world, that will help you navigate and adapt to the specific challenges you will face this week. But the thing is, if you're adapting to the ways of the world, you can't do that and have a thriving relationship with God while you're having an exploitive relationship somewhere in the world. It just won't work. You can't hold those together. So what we're told is you need to be heirs of the grace of life. And as you live that life of grace, 
you walk with God and you, and you, you ask God prayerfully, show me what it looks like to face this situation where I'm vulnerable or where I have authority. The charge to husbands to be understanding, to recognize, at the end of the verse is, why do you do this? Well, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, part of that is the need for a marriage to have sufficient health that the couple is praying together. How do you make decisions? Well, let's ask the Lord. How do we face the challenges that we can't face? Let's depend on the Lord. You know, there's a breakdown. There's something unhealthy if a Christian couple is not praying together. Some of you might, might now may realize it's been too long. Um, if you want to have a life rooted in grace, you need to be praying with the people you're partnered with. But the correction here, I think, extends particularly um, to husbands to say, don't think you could write off your wife as weaker and have a thriving relationship with God. Don't think that you can start to dishonor people because that paradigm will shape you. How are you going to come to God fully vulnerable so that he can deal with the things that you're ashamed of when you're uh, laughing and mocking at others that you deem weak in whatever sphere they are? So the warning here is, husbands, have understanding. Show honor to your wife as the wife is seeking to show honor to you so that your prayers aren't hindered. Because if you're not being honorable, if you're not rooted in grace, your walk with Christ is not going to thrive. And so whatever your relationship to the world is, it's as we see ourselves as heirs of grace called to live honorably that we adapt. Who am I in this situation? Do I need to yield? Do I need to provide strength and expertise? We have to navigate those situations. And when we do so following Christ, we're told there will always be the, the blessing of being an heir of the grace of life long term. Peter's warning us, don't give in. When somebody reviles you, don't revile them back. It's a temptation. Don't do it. Uh, but you relate to the world as though as Jesus has related to you. Don't do to them as they've done to you. But have a clear sense of what God has done to you. That though you didn't deserve grace, he showed it. So how do we go back into the world and then demonstrate that? It's through that faith to say, people may fail you, institutions may fail you, God will never fail you. Make that what creates the culture of who you are. Be honorable and go into the world prepared to honor everyone. Yes, love everyone. There are no rules, no bounding. Give of yourself. Sometimes you're not going to want to love people. You're going to want to hurt them. And the call is, don't give up, don't give in, but, but remember the grace of Jesus and, and allow that to cause you to navigate those scenarios where, where yes, sometimes... Um, we need to exercise the strengths of society. Governments sometimes need to arrest and punish. Bosses sometimes need to fire. Sometimes couples need to recognize things are so corrupt that for me to be honorable, I need to remove myself. That's not the plan, but that happens. Peter is preparing us for this world and its corruptions. But he's saying, your part in it, always choose what will honor Christ in truth, in grace. Exercise your authority and your vulnerability in relationship to him. And therefore, you can trust that he will sustain you. And in a marriage, if both are doing that, the marriage will flourish. And the idea is, in the reality of this world and our imperfection, if one person is breaking down, the one who remains honorable will sustain the marriage 
until there's a return. And sometimes there's no return. You have to deal with that. Um, but this is actually the way to deal with partnering through life as imperfect people in an imperfect world. Lean on Christ and trust him and seek to imitate him prayerfully um, in everything you do. Let me pray for us. Our Father, as we, as we seek to understand, as we seek to live according to knowledge, as we're called to, help us to be clear on you, uh, your power and your glory, but also your humility, your kindness, your generosity to us. Help us to understand grace so that it truly strengthens us. Lord, root out from us the corrupt desires, the self-serving desires that would make us exploit or make us ignore. Instead, help us to be honorable, that we would be discipled, that we would grow in you. And help us each as we go out into the world, seeking to exercise our gifts, our strengths, our advantages, but also as people who are vulnerable, grappling with our own shame, but also taking risk. Lord, be our protector. Uh, and watch over us. I pray for marriages and families and dating relationships. I pray for uh, singleness, all of the various ways that that anyone here is engaging, um, maleness and femaleness, whether it's in a family or in the institutions of this world. We pray for grace, for wisdom, so that we would we would go faithful to you, bringing change into the world rather than being corruptly changed by the things that are wrong with it. And help us this week to know what it looks like to adapt to whatever challenges we face uh, in whatever role we're playing to seek to honor you and to depend on you and to be rooted in grace so that we are protected, but also so that we might impact our world for good rather than being dented and damaged by some of what's wrong that we might come up against. So prepare us for this week. Um, Lord, remove our shame. Forgive us. And renew us by your spirit that we would be made alive and would go into the world boldly um, following after our good shepherd. We pray this in his name. Amen.